Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. The world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Hello, I'm Drew Sheldrick. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of 2020 Vision. The past week in US politics has been dominated by the so-called squad of Democratic Congresswomen who were the focus of persistent attacks by President Donald Trump. Trump, who told the four women of colour, three of whom were born in the United States, to go back to where they came from, has been criticised for what many commentators have argued is a clarion call for the more extreme elements of the Republican base, as tensions increase over race and immigration in the lead-up to the 2020 election. Let's have a listen to how the squad rose to political prominence in recent days. president saying the congresswomen, all women of color, originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, adding, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Color all our U.S. citizens. Does it concern you that many people saw that tweet as racist and that uh, white nationalist groups are finding common cause with you on that poll? It's hard to keep on being civil when they ask you such naive questions. It doesn't concern me because many people agree with me. Prominent website today saying this is the kind of white nationalism we elected him for. They hate America. They think America was wicked in its origins, and it's even more wicked today. I am not surprised at what he's doing, but I also know that we're focused on making it better because we don't leave the things that we love. And when we love this country, what that means is that we propose the solutions to fix it. We love all people in this country. And so we'll stay focused on our agenda. And we won't get caught slipping. Because all of this is a distraction. Xenophobic, bigoted remarks from the occupant of our White House. I will always refer to him as the occupant, as he is only occupying space. Talk that way about our country. Not when I'm the president. So I think they've said horrible things. Uh, they're anti-Semitic. And you look at the kind of statements they've made about Israel. Join us it's a in condemning the president's racist tweets. To do anything less would be a shocking rejection of our values and a shameful abdication of our oath of office to protect the American people. Dr. Grana Gergic has just returned from six months abroad at Harvard University's Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies. She's an expert in transatlantic relations and lectures in US politics and foreign policy here at the University of Sydney. Grana, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. And it's great to be back in Sydney. As we just heard, last week was dominated by President Trump's attacks on four congresswomen of colour, uh, otherwise known as the squad. We've seen race used as a pillar of Trump's campaigns and policies before, but what was it about this particular incident, do you think, that really seemed to unsettle people internationally as well as domestically? 
Well, um, what's been happening over the past week has really opened up the question of uh, the nature of American national identity, I would say, um, namely, who counts as an American? And uh, if I may use my academic hat here, uh, there was actually a really great book on, on the very uh, topic with the same question, who counts as an American, um, that was published back in 2009 um, by Elizabeth Tice Morse, uh, uh, an American professor, who showed that actually people who identify identify more strongly as the kind of prototype member of a particular a particular nation um, are le- less likely to consider those that don't fit that prototype as uh, truly uh, uh, members of their uh, own group or, or of the, their nation, or in fact, extend certain rights or benefits um, to them. The reason why I'm saying this is because obviously uh, the tweets um, by, by President Trump have um, clearly signal that he doesn't count certain Americans, in specific these four congresswomen, as uh, Americans, um, simply because they look different, because they pray different um, uh, than than, uh, what he considers to be the norm, uh, and that is kind of white Christian, right? And um, this is really, I mean, the reason why this has really unsettled people, um, not just in the United States, but all around the world, is because it's really in in clear contrast contradiction to what the United States should stand for, uh, where citizenship and membership of the nation is based not um, on the right of blood, um, as it is in some European states, but really it's about the subscription to a civic creed uh, that's been elaborated on in the founding documents uh, from the Declaration of Independence uh, to to its constitution. So um, President Trump in, in these tweets have just has just continued with uh, his nativist rhetoric, with some of the policies uh, that have been enacted or, or that have been tried to be enacted. Um, and, you know, if we look at it in this sort of long arc of his political career, um, it's basically the extension of birtherism around President Obama, yeah. right? Because of the way he looks, because of what his middle name is, or questioning, you know, whether a judge would be uh, fair given that he has Mexican heritage, et cetera, et cetera. So we come back to this question of conditional citizenship, of patriotism, right? Who is allowed to criticize um, the United States uh, if they don't fit that sort of prototype of who is um, supposed to be uh, a member of this American nation, according to, to President Trump. Trump appeared at a rally in North Carolina a short time after those initial tweets attacking these women. Uh, crowds there chanted, send her back, which is sort of an update of the lock her up chants, I think, from the 2016 campaign. Was this kind of ramping up of the base or the more extreme parts of the base, do you think, what he was intending? Uh, can we expect sort of more of this in the lead up to 2020? I would definitely expect there'll be more of the uh, playing of the identity politics and, and this race card um, as we head into um, the general election year. But um, here is where Democrats really need to be careful because this is exactly the ground that President Trump wants him on. Uh, It was Steve Bannon, if I'm not mistaken, who said, I would love them to just, you know, talk about identity and race all the time because this is actually what helps President Trump's cause and That's really Trump's former campaign manager exactly yep. and um, and still kind of this sort of looming presence somewhere in in the the background but. Um, 
what uh, we can see um, happened in 2018 midterm elections is exactly the the sort of strategy that Democrats employed that was based exactly against uh, playing identity politics or racial cards, right? Not getting baited um, to to respond to some of these provocations. And there were a number of those, obviously. But they knew that um, if they wanted to flip the House, at least, they needed to win those moderates. And the risk here is getting the Democrats um, to be perceived so far to the left and constantly playing and replaying this identity politics that they might actually push away some of the independents um, who aren't as concerned about these topics, would rather be hearing about, you know, health care or plans to, you know, uh, restructure <laughs> the way that the education system works, etc., etc. So um, this is some, th- this is a peril really of, of getting further into the this debate. Not to say, obviously, that some of these issues are very important and, and we shouldn't obviously deflect deflect from the fact that um, there is clear kind of racist motivation behind this. But equally, for political purposes, for political gains, uh, Democrats would be wiser to stay on topic and stay on issues rather than just get into the, the values game because this is where President Trump wants them to be. Because there is a lot of stake here, right? We've seen some tension between the Democratic leadership like Nancy Pelosi and these four Congresswoman in particular. So you think that, that, that this could likely exploit these sort of tensions and differences rather than bring Democrats together in the defence of these women? Certainly. If you um, manage to, you know, the the sort of old Latin proverb, divide ed impera, you know, the divide and, and, and then rule uh, is a strategy that's been well employed again in a number of campaigns. So you would like to ideally, from the perspective of the current incumbent in the White House, um, to divide his opposition position, right, to make uh, Nancy Pelosi and and um, the four congresswomen sort of the, these uh, enemies, but uh, who aren't actually coalescing so that their enemy, you know, makes them friends. Um, having said that, this is a sort of divide that we've seen in the Democratic Party essentially since November last year, since the midterms, because um, you do have this tension between the old guard and the new guard, right? Nancy Pelosi has been in D.C. for three decades now over three decades, right? She understands that incrementalism is the way to go. Um, but the the new blood, right, um, they want to uh, challenge the president more forcefully. They don't want to uh, kind of drop the idea of impeachment. They don't want to yield. And that might be a kind of factor of, of their um, age, right? And um, the, the kind of um, maybe lack of political experience, but also their firm commitment to some of these principles. And actually, this is something that their constituents are expecting them to do. They come from solidly uh, uh, blue um, districts, right, where uh, there isn't that much of a calculation or kind of um, the need to maybe moderate some of that uh, message, right? So um, they are pursuing um, this sort of tactic. And uh, again, Democrats would be much wiser to, to, you know, leave those differences for now aside and again, focus on the message. They've done great in 2018. If they want to uh, go ahead uh, and, and, you know, have a real good chance in 2020, um, these sort of differences should be parked aside, at least for for now, uh, um, so that they present a more unison voice um, towards President Trump, but also, you know, in appealing to the broader public. 
Trump cited the defence of Israel as one of the reasons he told these women to, to go back to where they came from. Uh, how did Israel and, and sort of anti-Semitism become a part of this debate? Because it's been raised quite a few times in the past week. Well, this is a classical sort of um, a deflection strategy and a, a case of whataboutism. It's uh, basically like this schoolyard uh, argument that they are having, you know, I'm not racist, you're racist, right? And and um, down the spiral we go. Um, clearly, you know, there have been issues there with um, some of the past uh, tweets and statements um, by Representative Ilhan Omar. Um, she's apologized for those um, and they did revolve um, around some of these um, tropes and, and you know, um, stereotypes about uh, Jews in, in the United States in particular. It was about but lobbying on behalf of Israel? Is that was the Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. this is where we get now to this sort of uh, issue that has reappeared in American politics time and again, but also in, in other places uh, around the world where, you know, criticism of um, Israeli policy at the moment, right, should not be equated with anti-Semitism. Because obviously, you know, this is where some of, as part of political strategy, President Trump would like to get to, right? Um, he is now kind of speaking to two audiences, I would say. Uh, first of all, to some of the, the kind of staunchest members of his base that garnered this anti-Muslim sentiment. So they are already prone to seeing Ilhan Omar as, you know, as a, as a Muslim congresswoman, as, you know, um, with some suspicion, let's let's put it that way. But also he's appealing to other parts of his um, either um, potential, you know, constituency or even base from the evangelicals who naturally have um, kind of predispositions to defend Israel based on some of the religious um, beliefs, but also parts of the uh, Jewish community, obviously, which can't be taken as a homogenous in the United States, right? They're more orthodox part of that community that are actually sensitive to some of these attacks and that do see um, th this kind of attack on Israel um, as, as problematic. And um, President Trump is trying to tap into, into some of those votes as well. Britain has a new Prime Minister after a vote of the Conservative Party members overnight. Uh, where do you think the US relationship uh, with the UK is headed under uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson? Well, it's notable that President Trump was actually one of the first ones to congratulate Boris Johnson on uh, becoming the, the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, it seems that a lot of commentary has revolved around how similar the two men yeah. are, um, not just in physical appearance. <laughs> I think there was the there was one of the late uh, late night shows said that uh, Boris Johnson looked like Donald Trump if he was transported into kind of Dickensian era. I think it was Colbert <laughs> or something. But um, yeah, all jokes aside, uh, certainly uh, the two men CI to I, at least in some of the, the, the populist rhetoric, but I think their personal histories are, are a bit different. And um, I would urge everyone to go and check out Boris Johnson, you know, debating Mary Beard on kind of the classics, ancients, you know, who would win Rome or Greece in kind of, you know, um, getting a sense of who Boris Johnson is. And I would say he is a very skillful politician who has put on this persona of a symbolic character. But I think there is a lot of calculus behind that. And finally, his dream of becoming the, the PM of the United Kingdom has come true. Now, having, um, you know, um, this sort of uh, agenda of getting the um, United Kingdom out of 
the European Union is going to take um, probably most of his bandwidth. So um, where the space for the transatlantic uh, cooperation might be um, when it comes to the US and the UK, we uh, certainly have a lot of talk of a potential trade deal between the two, but that can only happen. Nothing can get started uh, while the United Kingdom is still in, in the European Union. So all talks will have to be postponed until um, that uh, materializes, if it eventuates, obviously, given that the deadlines have come and gone. But the other thing that I think is really going to be pressing uh, the moment that uh, President, that sorry, Prime Minister um, Johnson steps into Downing 10 is uh, the issue of Iran. Um, obviously, over the past week, we've seen certain developments that have implicated now uh, the United Kingdom uh, uh, more in, into what's been happening, the tensions in the Persian Gulf with the seizure of the uh, British tanker um, and a part of their crew um, that's being held now by the Iranian um, Revolutionary Guard. And this is something that um, might test Prime Minister Johnson in terms of where he wants to uh, place the United Kingdom in uh, the rift that has been created after the United States has withdrawn from the uh, JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action or the Iran uh, deal as as it's known uh, more broadly. So um, whether the UK will actually side with the United States in reimposing sanctions and being much harsher um, to Iran or whether it's going to go down the line uh, its European Union uh, uh, colleagues have been going which is setting up this facility to to bypass sanctions to to still try to pretend you know that they're committed to the deal even though now Iran is obviously uh, um, doing things that are suggesting that they aren't committed um, either and obviously has stepped up uh, stepped up efforts to uh, restart uh, restart its nuclear program. You've just returned from Harvard's Center for European Studies where you're a visiting scholar for six months. What was the focus of your work and uh, research while you were there? So one huge chunk of my time was spent basically working on my book project, um, which is um, basically uh, trying to make this sort of idea of um, deprioritization in in foreign policy happen. So we often talk about grand strategies and, you know, what the United States does when it starts focusing on certain issues or, or regions more closely. But what I'm looking at is what what does it? Uh, what does the U.S. foreign policy look like in places or uh, regarding issues when they fall out of the the sort of uh, center of attention, or when they don't really top uh, the 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 kind of policy agenda? And um, the the region where I'm uh, looking that at, at that sort of dynamics is actually the Balkans uh-huh. after the '90s. So the United States, for much of the '90s, has been sort of laser-eyed focused, especially. Um, since Bosnia intervention and following in in Kosovo um, has been very involved in that part of the world. And then obviously because of 9-11, but also because of um, certain strategic uh, choices that the Bush administration made uh, has has kind of uh, made that region uh, less of a priority. And it hasn't been really in the the kind of center of the gaze of um, administrations from Bush uh, onwards. But still, you know, that doesn't mean just because the U.S. leaves that uh, regions get stuck stabilized or that you can actually break this sort of path dependence that has been created. So I'm essentially looking at um, how is foreign policy made once, you know, uh, 
the White House decides it's no longer a priority, but there are different push and pull factors from within the United States as well as um, that region in particular um, that still want to see uh, America involved. And um, yeah, tracing how this has uh, been been um, evolving over the past two decades. So uh, just this year, we've celebrated the 20th anniversary of Kosovo War. Um, and I can just tell you, given that I've been in the region, uh, the, the region is far from being the kind of beacon of democracy that everyone would have hoped for. Um, if anything, the democratic backsliding, some of the, the sort of, um, you know, call to arms that we've seen in, in some parts of, of the region uh, are suggesting that uh, we have a lot of unfinished business to deal with in that part of the world. What was the feeling among scholars about uh, European relations with the United States at the moment when you're at, at Harvard? I know uh, a lot of your colleagues over there are former sort of European leaders, you know, sort of sort of moved into academia. So I mean, a lot of the focus has obviously been on potential damage to NATO during the, the Trump era. But are, but are there greater areas of concern, perhaps, that you picked up among those mm-hmm. colleagues? Yeah. So I was there actually at a great time, uh, a sort of momentous uh, period in terms of you know uh, the first deadline for Brexit has had passed. Uh, we've had numerous panels on that. There were there were obviously European parliamentary election, which have now yielded finally. Uh, we've had the confirmation of the new president of the EU commission, and we have a whole new leadership uh, that will be coming in from uh, uh, fall, uh, European fall or our spring. Uh, and obviously there was um, the 70th anniversary of the NATO alliance, uh, which um, brought about a lot of discussions around the internal challenges to the alliance, from the lack of American leadership, from the the standard lines of European uh, underinvestment in in their defense and the need to to kind of boost that up, or also now uh, more and more talk about the fact that NATO is not just a, a military alliance; it's a kind of political community of countries that uh, should be subscribing to democratic ideals. And we know, you know, from Turkey to Poland to Hungary, a lot of them are falling way short of those ideals to external challenges, obviously, Russia uh, as the immediate challenge, but also China kind of um, on the rise and, and, and uh, starting to to pose uh, some some questions even for the alliance, but also, you know, issues of, of out of area operations, you know, what to do with Afghanistan now, because NATO is essentially a kind of a, a spearheading force there and, and some other things. But uh, what struck me the most was really uh, the number of discussions, uh, roundtables, conferences, even uh, that had China at its focus. Right. So uh, EU-China relations uh, were. Uh, the, what surprised me really was coming from this part of the world where we can't escape China, no, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously in kind of the discussions on, on the future of the Indo-Pacific and what would be the kind of best way to negotiate um, the the great power relations here, um, it seems that European Union has just woken up to uh, the, the challenge that China poses. And we've seen actually, it was only in March of this year that the EU came 
came out with this strategic outlook where for the first time it has used the term strategic rival for China. All of this time, right, China has been viewed solely as, as a partner or even as, as a, a kind of friend and, and a close kind of collaborator on issues of global governance. But now the EU is seeing China differently. And it's quite interesting because obviously, as with all things that have to do with uh, EU uh, policymaking, there are a lot of um, kind of dissenting voices. Um, Italy has joined the Belt and, Belt and Road yeah, Initiative right. uh, just earlier this year. So the first <clears throat> G7 country to do that. And um, some of the the kind of, you know, Eastern European uh, uh, countries that have uh, naturally gravitated uh, towards China because they have been st- kind of starved of, of money and they are really hungry for investments and China was there uh, to do that. So Greece joined the 16 plus one initiative, making it now 17 plus one and so on. So all of these different developments are posing uh, a lot of challenges for the incoming uh, EU leadership. And I suspect that we are going to hear much more about uh, the role uh, China is going to play in Europe and the extent to which EU is going to be, you know, willing to make this sort of trade-off of, you know, uh, getting the investments uh, in return for, you know, some sort of acquiescence to, to what China's been doing. So um, I, I think this is really the space to to be uh, um, kind of following. I'll certainly follow it with, with interest, but um, I think um, in terms of potential, you know, partnerships and, and kind of, um, you know, shifting sort of quality. Uh, coalitions, if you wish, in world affairs, um, this is uh, one of the developments that um, is certainly uh, one to, to look out for. Just finally, next week, we'll see a rematch of the Democratic presidential hopefuls for 2020 in two CNN debates. Do you expect foreign policy or even transatlantic relations to come up this time? Or are we sort of set for another sort of domestic policy matchup, do you think? Can I be brutally honest? Of course. Yes, please. We <laughs> I, welcome it. I think that if we hear transatlantic relations <laughs> in that debate, I uh, I don't know, I'm going to have a really long drink or something. Um, <laughs> we I, I would be willing to, to kind of bet that, you know, transatlantic relations will not come. (laughs) That's true, right? But I think uh, uh, the whole focus of these primaries is really on domestic policy. Um, And I believe we'll we'll hear more about healthcare. I think this is one of the uh, topics where we are now seeing a clear kind of difference. Finally, somewhere, you know, where uh, you can see the the candidates uh, uh, kind of spar and and start um, fighting out what, you know, the visions are um, under their perspective or what would be the kind of policy under their perspective administration. So between the uh, public option and Medicare for all, I think this is kind of now pretty crystallized as to uh, who would be in in which camp. I think climate change is going to probably be one of the more important uh, um, issues on on the the table. And then, you know, um, just now with the the Mueller testimony uh, that's going to happen, to what extent, you know, um, some of these issues around holding the president uh, to account will come up. Potentially. Exactly. We are likely to see the Congress, I mean, 
from all the the sort of uh, kind of insider accounts we've been hearing from uh, DC is that um, in the fall when the Congress comes back from its recess, we'll uh, see even more of the committee hearings and oversight and so on. So where do the candidates stand on some of these issues? And um, if foreign policy comes up, I think it will probably come uh, uh, and, and kind of be focused on Iran primarily. Um, so here we might hear a bit about the Europeans, but I don't think we'll uh, we'll we'll he- hear much more uh, on that. And certainly China is the the sort of stand uh, you know standing issue um, uh, in in U.S. foreign policy, the kind of greatest story of the centuries. Karana, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome back. It was a pleasure and um, great to be here. Thanks this week to Free Martins, Ketzer and the Bubba Mara Brass Band for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 